Good afternoon. I normally say good morning, and I've done well today, I think, to remember that it's afternoon. Um, we're going to be in a lot of scripture today, um, and I'm going to give you a, a brief overview. If you're taking notes, make a note of these things by way of outline. One, point one will be man's condition. Point two will be the consequence of man's condition. Point three will be the cost of Christ's work. Four, the provision of Christ's work. The motive for Christ's work. And six will be the resolution and continuation of Christ's work. I want to start with a Bible passage that underpins the message today, which is titled, The Work of Christ. We had the person of Christ, I think, last time with Kofi. This is the work of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, if you come to your word today, we thank you, Lord, that it is truth, it is life. And I pray uh, you would breathe uh, even that new life into us today, Lord, as we read it, as we study it, as we come together to ponder the work of Christ, a wondrous work of salvation, Lord, um, as we look to the person of Christ and the work that he did today. We pray you'll be glorified to be amongst us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're going to cover quite a bit today, uh, but I want to state beforehand that this message in no way plumbs the depths of the work of Christ. Uh, for example, I only touch on Jesus as the great shepherd. Whole sermons could be devoted to this subject alone. Nonetheless, I hope you'll be challenged and built up in your faith, faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who, as we will see, suffered and died on the cross at Calvary for you, and for me, I warn you now that you are going to be drenched today in Scripture, as Mark found out when he put my, uh, my Scriptures on the, uh, the, the slides for us. Hopefully, by the end of this teaching, we'll be so saturated with the Word of God that you'll be challenged and transformed. I want you to leave here today better than when you came in. As the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. If you read the book of Romans, you know clearly that it lays out that man is without excuse. This is where we'll cover point one, the condition of man. Romans 3, 10 to 12, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. We find here in the text that man is guilty of six specific things. Number one, there is none righteous. Two, there is none who understands. Number three, none who seeks for God. Number four, all have turned aside. Number five, they have become useless. 
And number six, no one does good. Romans 3.23 emphatically states the case, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all, not some, all. Let's take some time here to demonstrate unequivocally that man is hopelessly enslaved to sin. We'll cover each point, which might put you on a bit of a downer. And that is necessary. It is the doctrine of total depravity. But stay with me, because we will finish on a high. Number one, none righteous. There is no one who is right before God on their own merit. Remember, God is holy, distinct, and separate to man. Any standard that we hold is not the same standard as God. His standard is perfection. Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. By comparison, Isaiah 64, 6 states, But we all, like an unclean thing, and when all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Number two, there is none who understands. We are all born spiritually dead, and therefore the natural man cannot understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 4, 17 to 18, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of what? The blindness of their heart. Number three, none who seeks God. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart, you all know this one, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, God knows it. And by nature, we do not seek God. Over the last few years, I've heard a lot about the so-called truther movement, the saying has always, always bothered me. It suggests there are people who by nature are seeking truth. Well, the Bible says otherwise. Jesus is the truth. <coughs> Jesus did not save himself in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty exclusive. I should draw a distinction here between seeking knowledge and seeking truth. Many people want knowledge. That is true. But knowledge puffs up. It is the work of the Spirit of God that draws people. As it said in Hebrews 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the what? The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. John 6, 44 to 51. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I, uh, bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. If that's not convincing enough, then ask yourself this. If you had any hand in your coming to Jesus, coming to salvation, then you would have something to boast of. Well, God will not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And God can and does use the circumstances of your life to draw you. But it is he that does this, not you, not I. And anything to the contrary is rooted in self-righteousness. Number four, all have turned aside. What does this mean to turn aside? Well, more specifically, who have man turned aside from? Short answer, God. Men have turned aside from God. Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Number five, we have become useless. What does this mean to become useless? It may irk you a little bit today. The answer is found in Ephesians 2, 1. And you he made alive, who were what? Dead in trespasses and sins. I would say if you are dead in trespasses and sins, that would render you pretty useless. And number six, none who does good. Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So in summary, man is totally helpless, depraved, and unable to please God, this is not to say that man is incapable of some degree of goodness to, towards his fellow man, still made in the image of God, and capable of doing some level of good. But sin has invaded every aspect of his being, his heart, his mind, his motives, his desires, and his emotions. Hebrews 11.6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we can sum up these six points from Romans. Sum up a person in their fallen, unregenerate state in the following way. These are my words. An unrighteous, ignorant, disregarding, God-rejecting, useless, good-for-nothing. Hopefully that states the case pretty well. That, brothers and sisters describes each and every one of us in our fallen state. Cover point two, which is the consequence of man's condition. So we see that man is a slave to sin. John 8, 34, Jesus answered there, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So what is the consequence? Well, James 1, 15, 
Then when, si- when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Death. The answer is death. We are born spiritually dead. Ultimately, all who are not born again will experience the second death when they are cast into the lake of fire, being eternally separated from the presence of God. And that is what all of us deserve. That is what we earned. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. In our previous state, we were dead in trespasses and sins. You've heard it said, Jesus didn't come into the world to make bad men good. He came into the world to make dead men live. Prior to coming to Jesus, praying to be born again, we were all dead. Remember the film The Sixth Sense, if you've seen it? Remember that famous line from the young boy, I see dead people? Well, I remember my dad repeating that line, saying, I see dead people every day. And he was totally right. We all walk past dead people every day. The Bible describes mankind as one of two things. Either we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, and the wrath of God abides on us, or else we are born again. Of the Spirit of God and the life we now live, we live for him. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in, once you, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. I'm sure you can all familiarize your former life right there. So whose wrath will the sons of disobedience experience? The wrath of God. It's the wrath of God, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers or revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you and me. But you were washed and me. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So God cannot overlook sin. Rob talked about his attributes, with holiness being paramount to his nature as God. Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every man who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So in light of his holiness an account of man's sin, man has a serious problem on his hands. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. God was our enemy. A couple of points here by way of subtitles. God was our enemy. James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All unbelievers are in subjection to the power of Satan. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We were all helpless to save ourselves. Romans 5.6 For when we were still without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Death was what we deserved by right. Without Christ, it is the penalty. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, it's what we earned, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal separation and condemnation awaits all those that reject Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Let's move on to point three, which is the cost of Christ's work. Philippians 2, 7 to 8. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. There are three things that Christ did when he came to earth evident from this passage in, in Philippians. Number one, he emptied himself. Number two, he took the form of a bondservant. And number three, he was found in appearance as a man. Jesus humbled himself, as it states, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the agonizing cross. Think about the life that Christ lived. What was his life like on earth? We worship him here today and honor his name. We look on him today along with millions of people the world over in adoration, having been drawn with cords of love. But this was not so during his time on the earth. When he walked it, Isaiah 53, 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The deity of Jesus is crucially important. Simply put, deity refers to his divine nature. Jesus was, and it's been spoken about, 100% God and 100% man. Now, Jesus, who existed in eternity past, in taking on flesh and being found as a man, submitted himself to the will of the Father, and he operated, as we should, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again because I want, I want to drive that point home. Jesus, who existed in eternity past and taken on flesh and being found as a man, submitted himself to the will of the Father and operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, again, even the death of the cross. There's a word that describes Jesus emptying himself in becoming a man. That word is kenosis. I'll appear on the board behind me. Kenosis. The word is translated uh, emptied. It's the form of canoe from which we get the word kenosis. 
we should be careful here in interpreting what this emptying means. It would be best understood as laying aside the privileges afforded him in heaven from where he came. He left his throne in heaven, came down to earth. He, uh, he temporarily veiled his glory and took on the form of a bondservant. Clearly, Jesus did not empty himself of his divine attributes. We know this through the myriad examples when Jesus put on full display his position as the second person in the Godhead. He changed water into wine. He multiplied five loaves of bread to feed thousands. He walked on water. He healed the sick and he raised the dead to life. But he never operated outside the will of the Father. He never operated independently. And in this way, he restricted himself. He was fully God and fully man. He got tired. He experienced weakness. He got hungry. He bled. He was without question fully and unequivocally human with all the weakness of a man, bar one essential difference. What is it? He was without sin. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus be fully God and fully man. If he were not fully God, then he would not be able to represent God. If he were not fully God, then he would not be perfect and his sacrifice for sin would not be acceptable. If he were not fully man, then he would not be able to represent man. And if he were not fully man, then he would not be able to bear the punishment for sin that was rightfully ours. So what does it take in order for sin to be forgiven? I told you you might feel on a bit of a downer. Hebrews 9.22 And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So what was the cost to Christ in order to redeem us? His blood. His shed blood. 1 Peter 1.18-19 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, Rob spoke about it, without blemish and without spot. What were those famous words that Jesus utters as he hung on the cross? They are both harrowing to think of, yet at the same time beautiful in demonstration of the great love with which he loved us. Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ponder that for a moment. What was it that God did to Jesus as he hung on the cross? Isaiah 53, 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We shared today in the Lord's Supper, uh, by the providence of God, it's fallen on the day I was to teach this message. I didn't plan it. It is here that we find the central theme of the gospel message. The very heart of the gospel is the doctrine of substitutionary sacrifice, found in the words of Jesus who says, This is my body that was given for you. Christ suffered for you. 
or as in 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Uh, we did a special teaching, for those of you that remember, during Easter service on the various aspects of Christ's work on the cross regarding the meaning of redemption, justification, reconciliation, and propitiation. All these works of Christ sit under the overall work of Christ as our substitute. So this is crucial to the message of the gospel. As if Jesus is not our substitute, then we will bear our own sin and the consequences thereof. Your sin and mine was put on him, and he bore the punishment that you and I deserved. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. He took our physical and spiritual punishment upon himself so that what? We would not have to bear it ourselves. John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So the, the terminology here, bore our sins, is used many times in the Old Testament and in various forms, depending on the translation, but rarely in the New Testament. So what does it mean, bore our sins? Well, here's a few examples from the Old Testament be important in understanding and applying it to the passage here in the New Testament used of Jesus bearing our sins or bearing our iniquities. Numbers 14, 32 to 47. Just a couple of examples. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years, you'll know the story, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After a number of days in which ye search the land, even forty days, each day for a year, ye shall bear your iniquities. Even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it until all this evil congregation that are gathered against me, or gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. And the men which Moses sent to search the land who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land. Even those men that did bring up the evil report from the land died by the plague before the Lord. Ezekiel 18, 19 to 20. Yet say ye why doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father? When the son, uh, when the son hath done that which is lawful and right and hath kept all my statutes and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So in the, these examples, just a couple, we see this issue of punishment being meted out. So it's punishment being meted out. The children of Israel bore the punishment for failing to believe God and for 40 years wandered in the wilderness. 
with that generation dying out and falling, oh, and falling and failing to enter the promised land. Remember, they all died out in the wilderness. For each day they spied out the land, one year was meted out wandering in the wilderness. The iniquity of the father shall not be upon the son, and each will bear their own iniquity or punishment. It literally means to take the punishment, to bear the penalty of sin. So we see on the cross of Christ, Jesus bore in his body the punishment or the penalty for our sin. The penalty or punishment that we rightfully deserved. Jesus was our substitute. This is where it gets good. Jesus was our substitute. He took our place. The place that you should rightfully have been in. The place our sins earned. The work of Christ was in bearing your sin in his body as a substitute for you and for me. Let that sink into your hearts and minds today. As we sing in the lyrics from before the throne of God above, perhaps today will bring fresh insight and meaning to that wonderful song. When Satan tempts, I won't sing it. I'll spare you that. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Copy read it earlier. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That brings us on to point four, which is the provision of Christ's work. The provision of Christ's work. The purpose of Jesus coming to earth as a man was to pay the price for sin. It was a heavy price that could be paid only with the laying down of his own life. The blood of animals instituted in the Old Testament could not take away sin. Rob spoke of it earlier on. That ram could not take away sin. It could only serve as a temporary covering for sin. When God looked on such animal sacrifice, he looked ahead to the cross of Christ where the sinless saviour would take away sin once for all with the sacrifice of his very own life. Hebrews 10.4 For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. John 10.11 I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for, his, for the sheep. John 10.17-18 Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus dying on the cross accomplished our salvation. I want to point out a few things for us to consider today. Take some time as you hear these things to take them personally. The application here must be personal. Because Jesus did it for you. Jesus accomplished these things in your life. He brought you to God. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So he brought you to God. He reconciled you to God, Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You have been reconciled to God. He imputed his righteousness to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He has imputed his righteousness to you. He rescued you from evil. Galatians 1.4, He gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil age according to what? The will of our God and Father. He has rescued you from evil. He redeemed and forgave you. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He has redeemed and forgiven you. He freed you from the power of sin. It may not feel like it at times, but he has freed you from the power of sin. Romans 6, 6 to 7, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. He has freed you from the power of sin. Jesus died primarily so that we will live for righteousness. This has been the part of my study that's been the most revealing to me, that he primarily died that we would live for righteousness. That is what the believer, that is what you and I are called into, righteous living. We've not just been saved from our sin, as wonderful as that might be. We have not just been assured of eternity in heaven, in his presence forever, as wonderful as that will be. Whilst these things are true, we often miss this glorious truth that Jesus' death means we have been called into righteous living. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself, catch it at the end, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might what? Live for righteousness. Jesus took our place. Having taken the handwriting of requirements that was against us, having nailed them to the cross, and he triumphed over all principalities and powers and demonstrated it by what? Rising from the dead. Colossians 2, 11 to 15. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made what? Alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I said it would get good, 
this is where it's hotting up. Christ has provided reconciliation to God. His work of suffering in our stead has secured peace and harmony with God. Colossians 1, 19 to 23. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above, above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And that moves us on to point six, the motive for Christ's work. What was the motive for Christ's work? Have you ever thought about the fact that nowhere salvation was made available to angels? Once they fell, they were cast out of heaven. Jesus says he saw Satan fall like lightning. And they said a third of, the, ever, uh, of the, the angels fell with him. I don't know how many there are. I assume there's quite a lot. So it would follow that God did not have to save men. There is nothing in us that would cause him to save us. But there is what? There is something in him that would cause him to save us. What is that something? I had a chat to someone yesterday about this. One of the defining attributes of God, probably the most defining, which you don't find in any of the other religions around the world, is love. That's something, that defining attribute of God described in the famous 1 Corinthians passage is love. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We also see the attribute of mercy strongly at work in salvation. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The greatness of his mercy is seen in Romans 5, 6-8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good, man, a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. And point six the resolution and continuation of Christ's work. For those of you that have seen The Passion of the Christ, you'll remember the thrilling end to the movie. When the stone is rolled away, beams of light stream in through the darkness, driving it away, and we see a glimpse of the risen Christ. Not the risen Christ, but you get the point. If we were to finish today with Jesus still on the cross... Or in the grave, you would perhaps leave here today in sorrow over your own sin and sorrow over the suffering of our Lord. 
a man acquainted with grief. While such sorrow has its rightful place, it is not the end of the story. For Jesus Christ has conquered sin and conquered the grave. I told you at the beginning of the sermon, you might be on a bit of a downer, but I assured you we would finish on a high. Romans 1.4 And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He is not in the grave. Following his resurrection from the dead, Jesus was what? Exalted to the right hand of the Father where he continues to intercede on our behalf. He is still active. Hebrews 1.3, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because he lives, we live. You live. Second Timothy 2.11, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Romans 6, 5 to 11. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We're not in that fallen state any longer. We should not be slaves of sin. For he, has, he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, having sat down at the right hand of the Father, lives to make intercession for us. Kevin dealt with this in his Hebrews teaching. You might remember. We spent a few weeks there. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and one mediator between God and, man, and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And finally, in closing, we come today to one of my favorite passages of Scripture. A fitting close, as we have considered today, the wonder of the work of Christ. John 14.3 and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What is the beauty of heaven? Is it not Christ? Is it not in his presence? If you took all the wonder and the beauty of heaven and Christ were not there, would you want to go there? It's where he is. It's where he dwells. That's the purpose to be in his presence. And he's gone to prepare a place for you and for me that where he is, we may, be, we, we may be also. So what should we take away from today? Much, I hope. But man is sinful, dead and without the ability to save himself. Man is thus deserving of judgment and the wrath of God. The blood of Christ 
is the only hope for mankind. Not simply to save us from the consequence of sin, but that we should live for righteousness. Christ came to die in our place as our substitute. And he did it because of what? Because of his love for us. He is still active today, interceding on our behalf. And finally, as I've just said, he has gone to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. Bow your heads and we're going to close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wondrous work that you have done on the cross in coming and living a sinless, spotless, perfect life that there was nothing in you with the capacity to sin. All temptation came to you and you resisted it even with its full weight. Because of that sinless perfect sacrifice of your body on the tree we have that wonderful hope of eternal life with you in your presence Lord I pray if there is anyone here today that has not made that commitment to come before you in repentance simply asking simply acknowledging that they are a sinful person that they are not perfect, that they have done wrong, that they would just acknowledge that fact before you and that they would know that believing in your name, a simple act, they would have newness of life, that you would come into their life, you would fill them with, it, with your spirit and that might, they might move on from here, from this day forward, a new creation and that they might live for righteousness. If there's anyone here today anyone looking and listening online, I urge you, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait till tomorrow. Come to Christ today. He loves you. He died for you. And Father, we give thanks that you have made all things new. Even as you said on the cross, behold, you made all things new. We love you. We praise you. We worship you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.